0: Find sustainability. Odds are, your definition is completely different from the next person's. Appalachian State University's Director of Sustainability, Dr. Lee Ball, sits down with his guests to explore the many ways in which sustainability affects our lives. This is Find Your Sustain-Ability. Here with me today is Majara Carter, Majara is an American urban revitalization strategist and green real estate developer. Majara Carter is probably the only person to receive an award from John Podesta's Center for American Progress and a Liberty Medal for Lifetime Achievement from Rupert Murdoch's New York Post. Fast Company named her one of the 100 most creative people in business. The New York Times described her as the green power broker. The Ashaka Foundation's changemakers.org recently dubbed her the prophet of local. Thank you, Majar, for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Hi, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And yes, this is the most amazing podcast studio I think I've ever been in.
0: <laughs> so let's just launch right into it. I um I've really enjoyed listening to your comments and getting to know you a little bit this afternoon. I'd love to hear about your story a little more, how you came to value, sustainability, value in the environment, and people?
1: Hmm. I think to start that story, I mean, it really does go back to how I grew up and the kind of neighborhood that I grew up in, which is a very low-status community, urban community in the South Bronx in New York City, which is still to this day is often known as sort of like the poster child for urban blight, and a very you know poor community of color, we call it low-status, because there's just been you know, issues around its social, environmental, and economic development. And it's never really, I think, come into its own, at least not for the past uh, 70 years or so. And our work really has been about how do you show that you don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. My early work really focused specifically on more of the environmental project-based programs, whether they were working to transform dumps into parks or create greenways around, you know, sort of heavily trafficked streets and also doing green job training and placement systems and has since moved into real estate development because I realized that how communities are planned and developed is really what creates a community that people either feel connected to and have place some value In not just because they own a piece of property, because they see that community itself as something that has value that makes them feel good about being in it. And in low status communities, that's often absolutely not what people that are born and raised there tend to feel about the place.
0: So, was there, when you were like a little girl, was there a place that was natural, some woods or the river, a place that you just remember going to and spending time?
1: Um, I had the benefit of my parents actually taking me out of the neighborhood in order to experience nature. Um, My parents are from the South, and even when they moved up, you know, like I had an aunt who had a blueberry farm in uh, New Jersey, and it was actually like sold more blueberries than I think any other farm did at the time. At least when I was a little girl or, you know, we had relatives that lived in Connecticut and they had land around their house. So I saw that, but within my own community, with it being like what was considered an urban ghetto, there wasn't anything like that. So I knew that it existed, but it never occurred to me that there was anything like that there. As a matter of fact, I knew that there was a river right by my house called the Bronx river. And I only knew that because I saw it on a subway map, like literally mm-hmm. the name of it, but it, it was the place where industry was, where prostitutes were, and that's their truckers would go to find them there. And so if anything, like my idea of the urban environment was that it was a scary place to be. And just by the nature of it being located in an urban area, it wasn't worth speaking about at all.
0: Right. I'm fascinated too I, I, I'm curious how people develop a sustainability ethic. Mm-hmm. And my experience, my childhood was kind of the opposite of yours. Spent a lot of time in nature and a, sm- a relatively small city with, uh, you know, your classic kind of suburban neighborhoods. But, you know, a lot of wooded areas and wooded lots and ponds and creeks and the ocean not too far by. And I attribute my kind of sense of having a strong sustainability ethic to maybe having a lot of logged hours mm. you know in that in that space yeah and so it's fascinating to me that you still ended up with a strong sustainability ethic but it was maybe because of what you've witnessed maybe kind of culturally and and with you know the environmental kind of injustice all all around you yeah
1: and again my idea of of nature was also heavily influenced by uh gosh what was it called mutual of omaha's wild america yeah Yeah. wild kingdom
0: wild kingdom oh
1: my gosh like we watched that as a family (laughs) oh my gosh i can't believe you remember that too and and all the nature shows like oh my gosh but again this was not my reality. And of course that couldn't happen, you know, in a place like the South Bronx or New York City or any urban area like that. But what was interesting, like, I think my my sustainability ethic, you know, really came from discovering that all communities were not treated the same, you know, because I was taught like many kids that come from communities like that to measure success by how far we get away from those places. Like, especially if you're like a smart kid who's identified early as being a bright one, um, you're expected to leave. You're encouraged to leave and go to college and, you know, never return. People will talk about you because you got out of the neighborhood and isn't that great. And you know and i was one of them who's like sure i'm happy to do that i, don't want, I really want to it's like i don't want to i'm a little tired of seeing my buildings uh in the neighborhood burnt down i'm tired of seeing people that i know and love um you know be killed or be a part of the criminal justice system and you know being uh, having our neighborhood be thought of as as just the epicenter of all the things that are bad about america and and i was like yeah i'm out i'm totally mm-hmm. out but it was only when you know, years later, and and it's true, I didn't come back out of any particularly altruistic reasons uh, at all. I started graduate school and needed a cheap place to stay, and that was my parents' house, and then discovered that my city and state were planning on building yet another huge waste facility that was going to bring about Another third of the city's waste infrastructure to our community and a particularly egregious kind that really would have had even more of an impact, you know, on the quality of life and health of the people that lived in the community. And there was a moment when I was just like, good God, I can just finish getting my degree and get out take my cheap rent and as it is and mm-hmm. move on as soon as I can, or I can, you know, stay and be a part of the solution. And that's what I wanted to do. But I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't all about just fighting against stuff, because believe me, there are plenty of people that do that. And I'm not saying that there are some some things that need to be fought, because we do. But there was the other piece around how do you create more opportunities to actually build. So what are we actually not just fighting against what are we fighting for? And that's when you know most of my early projects came to be around you know that we were you know took a, a place that had been dumped on on the Bronx River for decades and that I only discovered because there was a US Forest program that was literally giving tiny little seed grants to community groups that were working you know around threatened or underserved Urban Rivers. And I got one of those little grants and was able to leverage that, gosh, about 300 times over into this beautiful $3 million park that's, you know, winning national awards. And I'll speak for it's, its excellence in urban design. But now it's just, you know, it's only been there for coming up on 11 years this year. And it's like it's always been there when actually, no, it was a dump. 12 years ago, (laughs) literally. Um, So I'm so happy about those type of things. But my real focus now is in real estate development, because I realize how all communities are dictated by the way real estate is developed in them. And you can determine how it's going to either flourish in one way or another, are there going to be the kind of economic developments that provide, you know, health and, and economic vitality to a community? Or is it just going to extract the talent that's in there? And so when we think about how do you create a community, um, even looking at it kind of as, as, as your own company, and you know, companies retain talent, good ones know that part of their strategy for staying relevant and supporting their own bottom line is by keeping the talent to help make sure that happens and so what we thought when we think about communities that way part of what we do is we have to retain the talent that's actually born and raised there and so instead of essentially encouraging the people in those communities um, you know that are going to grow up and quote unquote be somebody and have them do it someplace else we want to give them reasons to stay in their own communities and we realize that you know through our own series of data collection um, tools that folks were leaving because of mostly lifestyle related situations. And, you know, whether it was a good place to get a good cup of coffee or Mm -hmm. have a dinner or buy a book, you know, or have a drink with a friend or just buy decent groceries, those type of things were lacking in our communities. And so people weren't leaving because the crime rate was bad because it's been going down like every single year. Like since um uh, since the the 90s actually and you know people are just you know often and in, in parks are there now and there's you know people's families are there and there is a a community mm-hmm. there so it's they're leaving because they don't have those other type of things that they have grown accustomed to um, because they did all the right things they got an education they got a job and, and they're they want to set down roots in a place that's actually going to inspire them. And so Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is build that kind of community so that they'd want to stay, first and foremost. We do want to attract other folks there because we think diversity is really important. And we realize that economic diversity is also incredibly important as well, as is racial diversity. And having them all in the same place actually, I think, helps make a much more stable
0: community from Mm -hmm. all concerned you um, talked about how you love data and um, earlier today and I was you were just um, kind of maybe wonder if you had explored um, a community like you started with and then compared to a community that you have now. I, I thought of it because I read an article about a street design mm-hmm. change so you're kind of classic street with strip malls and no bike lanes and um, and then compared to kind of a smart growth, new urbanism situation with, you know, greenways and, and uh, bicycle lanes and mixed use residences and opportunities for coffee, opportunities for taking your dry cleaning right down mm-hmm. the road. And you, you increase those personal connections with yes. people because you're walking around and you mm-hmm. meet all these people and you make friends and, and it's you're more resilient and... So on and so forth.
1: Yeah, I um, was actually really moved by a similarly a study or an article that I read about after the heat wave in Chicago. It was a number of years ago, but there was what was what I found most interesting was the there was this study about these two neighborhoods that existed side by side, and they were both equally poor communities. One of the neighborhoods, you know, actually had these rather informal social spaces, and the other one did not. And so the mortality rate in the community that did not have any kind of social space so that people could actually see, you know, if so-and-so didn't show up and they normally do to whether it was to like at a little, um, you know, green market where they would buy, you know, their native fruits and vegetables, they didn't show up today. So people would know it's like, Oh, I haven't seen miss so-and-so. We need to go check on her. Um, So in that community where they didn't have those spaces, the mortality rate was extremely high yet in the other one, it was not so high at all. And the initial data kind of lumped them together. So they were like, ah, it wasn't that bad. Um, You know, at least the mortality rate because they just kind of fudged them together. But when they looked at them separately, they realized there were very low fatalities in the other one from heat related deaths. And the only thing that was different that the study showed was that there were those social spaces. And so there was a sense of social cohesion there. And even though it was a very poor neighborhood, you know, people knew to look out for each other. And so that, you know, again, it was informally designed, you know, and maybe some of these social spaces might have been technically illegal because they were like, you know, fruit stands where they oh, shouldn't yeah. have been there, but who cares? It saved some lives when it came right down to it. So as far as our own work, we've absolutely seen that level of, you know, building a space that is social, which is a coffee shop, like one little coffee shop that's very attractive and that folks – like to be seen in <laughs> because it's so pretty. And we knew that they, because they told us through through the data that we collected, these are the type of places that they would go to when they leave the neighborhood. So we were like, we need to build one of these things in our own neighborhood and, you know, collect their dollars so that it stays in the community and is actually hiring somebody from this community. and, and But it also becomes this um, third space that's neither work nor home and just provides people a sense to kind of get together. So whether it's economic developments and and certainly the streetscape you know, that we've built actually we've added to our own streetscape by actually putting benches in front you know of the coffee shop like going down a portion of the street and little coffee shop tables in front of them as well so there's like this like you know Parisian cafe type feel which people love again to be seen at and then there's a greenway that goes down the middle of the street so it is actually an incredibly attractive spot creating those kind of places that allow folks to feel that way that is what we're doing, and we're doing it because of this stuff—if I have anything to do with it—it it will absolutely outlive me. And but really setting the stage for for it to happen—that's the important piece. That's that's um, really why I get up in the morning.
0: Nice. And you create parks mm-hmm. and the natural areas that you didn't have. Yeah. And so you know, other little boys and girls—you know—might have a different experience growing yeah. up in the South Bronx.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And they have that experience, and, and it's it's funny going down there. Um, to the park that, you know, the people that know me will call it Majora's Park. Everybody else calls it Hunts Point Riverside Park. And uh, and it's true whether or not people have any idea, you know, that I had anything to do with it. Like many, especially younger people, they just think that it's been there forever. Right. <laughs> it's just like, no, baby. Um, but, but it's good that they think it's there because they'll also feel like it's theirs to protect you know and we've had um you know instances where that where that has been pressed and uh like one of my one of my favorite stories is a uh, and i was this was when the park was probably about 6 years old and no 4 it was 4 and uh you know and i remember i was actually doing a consulting gig because i was nowhere um i was actually on the other coast and and i saw it but i was say someone sent me you know a link to a news report the park had been vandalized and it was clearly by one person that just, you know, super like painted, um, really not particularly attractive graffiti on it. And and I remember feeling, you know, I'm 3,000 miles away and I'm just like, what am I going to do? You know, and I couldn't, I was with a client, I had other stuff to do. <laughs> and so I couldn't get on the phone and call the commissioner or do anything of that stuff like that. Or I could have, but I was just like, Majora, that's not your job right now. But by the time I got home three days later, any trace of vandalism was gone. Because the next news story that I saw were people literally saying, like, you've got to be kidding. Like, how could somebody come here and do this to our park? Like, this is unacceptable. And because there was such a groundswell of people just, you know, claiming it as their own, the city literally, like, got rid of every, I mean, it was extent, much more extensive damage um, than any, like, one group could handle. But by the mm. time I got home, it was as if it had never happened.
0: Well, it's beautiful.
1: Yeah. So yeah. I was like, I had nothing to do with it. So I'm like, you know what? I've done my piece and it's just like passed the ball on and that makes me super happy
0: and that's community
1: yes precisely
0: So I have to ask you, you remember Mutual of Omaha's Wild well, Kingdom, so do, do you remember the um, the Native American with the tear and the yeah, litter yeah Yes, of course the, the I do. Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh, I lived for it during um, the Schoolhouse Rock and yeah. all the Saturday morning commercials. Are you kidding?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. that had such an impact on mm-hmm. me, you know, and uh, have you looked at it recently? I don't even think he was a Native American. It's really hard no, to watch. It was, a,
1: it was this really nice, um, I think he was a, a Jewish guy, might have been from the Bronx, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, It might have been the Bronx River. (laughs) It was very funny. It was really funny. But, you know, he he played that part well. It was good.
0: Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask one more question. Um, What's giving you hope these days?
1: Hmm. Uh, What's giving me hope is the perseverance and resilience of folks to continuously be innovative, even though I think there are many out there who think that the world is falling apart. (laughs) And they're still just... Doing the work and really not being afraid of um, you know what could happen, but really trying to create hope and and, uh, and possibility in their own work. That's what makes me happy. I mean, the work that we've been able to do, I think, just gets sweeter because I know that I'm responding to the well-stated hopes and aspirations and needs of folks you know who have told me the kind of things that would help make their lives better and their communities more livable. And, you know, I feel like my my job really is to put, you know, meat on those on those bones. That's what I do as an urban revitalization strategist as a real estate developer. And, and I feel like I've been really blessed and privileged to be in a position to to continue that kind of work.
0: Nice. Well, Majora Carter, it's been a treat talking to you. Thank you so much for coming to Appalachian State, and we hope to have you back sometime.
1: Thank you. I'd love to be back.
0: Find Your Sustainability is a production of the University Communications Department at Appalachian State. It's hosted by our Director of Sustainability, Dr. Lee Ball. The show is produced by Troy Tuttle and Megan Hayes. Dave Blanks records, edits, and mixes. Pete Montaldi and Alex Waterworth are our web team. Find more episodes of this and other interesting podcasts at Appalachianmagazine.org, or check us out on iTunes. Just search for Appalachian State University under podcasts.